Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Vanessa Ramos is my first guest this week. She's a television writer. She's written for shows like Superstore, Border Town, Crashing, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Now she has her own show, Blockbuster, on Netflix. As you might have guessed from the title, Blockbuster is about the once great video rental chain of that name. It's a sitcom set at the very last franchise location of the store. The show stars Randall Park and Melissa Fumero in the leads, with a great supporting turn from J.B. Smoove. Park and Fumero play Timmy and Eliza. Timmy has worked at Blockbuster since, well, probably since the last time you set foot in a Blockbuster. He seems happy enough, but, you know, he's also the longtime manager of a Blockbuster. Eliza worked with Timmy back in the day, went to college, had a kid, but then fell on hard times, and now she's back. Timmy's thrilled to have her there since he kind of has a thing for her. Eliza, she's not so happy about the whole situation. Here's a little bit from Blockbuster's pilot. The employees of the store have just found out that theirs has become the last remaining Blockbuster in the world. They've closed up the corporate office, and the folks working at the store are a little worried about their long-term job security. But Timmy has an idea to get folks in the community to sign up for memberships. A block party? We might as well start looking for other jobs now, as if there are any. This town's not exactly the land of milk and honey, especially since they shut down the dairy and the apiary. Don't worry, I'll light a prayer candle the second I get home. And I'll wish upon a star. How am I supposed to be the next Tarantino if I don't work in a video store? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what's holding you back. This is the only job I've ever had where my boss didn't yell at me or ask if I can do the splits. Great, now I have to go back to selling leggings. At least now I can see my friends. I love you more than my real kids! I can't do the splits, Guys! No one's going anywhere. Or doing the splits. (laughs) Vanessa, uh, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you. I think it's fair to say everyone here is old enough to remember when Blockbuster went bankrupt. But do you remember when Blockbuster moved in to your neighborhood, or was it always there? I seem to remember it being always there. Because it was, I think it was just even before I was like, knew it was in the building, there was the blue awning. And it just kind of looked fun. Like, it was like Blockbuster and then like a little gym. And I was like, I know those two things somehow seem appealing to me. Did you remember like the aesthetics of it? I did. Um, Like, I also remember it had, like, a certain—I don't even know how I would, like, describe the smell of it. My brain wants to go, like, candy corn? But, yeah, I, like, I remember, like, walking in sort of, like, the aisles and then immediately just, like, the colors popping from, like, the candy and then the big, like, new release sign that was over the huge section. It was, like, way too many copies of Terminator, but then they, like, were gone. So I guess there was a method to the madness, but it was, I think— like I've talked about, it's like sort of, you know, like you said, a fantasia, like this world of possibilities. It's like, I'm going to go through each and every one of these titles and find the perfect thing. And it was like very, with great power comes great responsibility, you know? Are you able to do, were you able to do that emotionally? Because that was a real struggle for me when video stores still existed. I was, <laughs> I couldn't pick, not because I wanted it to watch every, I just felt like I was going to get it wrong. Yes. 
Oh, constantly. And I think it like I got it wrong enough. I mean, I think think my main my primary memories are when I was like little. And my like I'd go with my family and my brother and I would have to agree on one movie for the both of us. And he's like two years younger. And we had just messed it up so many times that it was like, okay, so we're between these two. Yeah, it would always be like some version of like DuckTales or something. But like these two. And then ultimately we would get scared and end up going with Rockadoodle, which was like <laughs> a animated. So it, I, if I remember the movie correctly, it's an animated like rooster based on Elvis who like he has. And this little boy is like, Chanticleer has, Chanticleer has to crow. He has to bring up the sun. And then it turns out to be a child's fever dream at the end. I think that's like the end of the Don Bluth line of films like it was like American Tale was like the peak you know you had your Charlotte's Web you had your American Tale and at the end it was just like "Mm, it's a rooster that seems like Elvis is this anything yeah the other thing that I very vividly remember that was a you know a Proust's Madeline's moment for me in watching your show was those big movie posters on the wall and and it reminded me that for and this may be a commentary on the neighborhood I grew up in, but for years, the big poster in the window of the blockbuster by my house was Fat Beach, P H A T. Oh, I know the spelling of Fat Beach, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know the butt from the poster because it was quite prominent? Yes. <laughs> what are the What are the things that you remember like looking at in there? Um. I, re- I yeah, I don't when you like as soon as you said Fat Beach, immediately the poster came back to my head. But yeah, I'm trying to remember what was in mine in San Antonio. But it always felt like it felt like some version of Weekend at Bernie's or like Howard the Duck or like someone was wearing sunglasses and it <laughs> meant that like they were living outrageously. Um, but then there'd be like like primal fear. <laughs> I'm like, what is th- this balance? Okay, so tell me a little bit about San Antonio, when and where you grew up. What what were the circumstances of your childhood? Um, yeah, I don't know. My like mom and dad were born. My dad was actually born in Panama. His dad was a translator for the military, but like you know, it counted as like U.S. But it was kind of that's where their families were, and so that's where um, you know my family stayed. And it was like tight knit Mexican family. Everyone lives within a five mile radius of each other. And yeah, I went to Catholic private school for 12, I want to say unsuccessful years, but the years were fine. It was just, I don't think the messaging really got to me. <laughs> like it didn't connect with you? No, I think the it's just like it, it didn't like it didn't imprint on me, I guess, is like my thing. Because it was also one of those like schools, like I went to like different um, uh, elementary through eighth and then high school. But one of those schools where it's like, even though I'm a child, I'm like, mm, the priest shouldn't be wearing Prada shoes, right? Like, he's like, what do we, when they pass that basket around, like, is it a, you know, is he getting something custom made by Mark Jake? Like, what are we doing? Did you think that you were going to become a comedy person? No, I thought, um, I don't know. I think it's like, I was a very shy kid. And um, like, I watched it. I, I didn't like make friends easily or at all for most of my life, but, like, I watched... Oh, wait, hold on. How how sincere is that? What do you mean by that? No, I mean, like, I just was, like, a shy kid. Like, my mom, I think, it was, like, when I was little, or even as I was, like, starting to get older, she was like, oh, go, you know, why don't you go, like, hang out with Katie, like, a friend of, like, her, you know, oh, like, one of my mom's friends. But I was always, like, just sort of hanging out with, like, the little kids, teaching them how to, like, draw dogs and stuff. Like, I just kind of drew a lot and was, like, pretty 
quiet and have, you know, I still have anxiety, but it was something I hadn't worked through yet. And then also in Texas, like that wasn't when I was growing up. It's like, well, anxiety and like other issues, like that's not really a thing yet, you know, that we like acknowledge. She's just like, oh, she's just a weird, quiet kid. Were you also just consumed by family? I think so. You know, my brother and I were pretty close until we hit like that, you know, when I was like 15 and he's 13. And then just as teens, you like hate each other, but then um, got close again later on. But yeah, I think I was just very to myself because I felt, um, you know what? And I felt, oh, this is, we're about to get into an interesting place. I hadn't thought about this. But like, I think if I really think about it, when I was five, we had to go to mass every week in school. And one of the things, one of my um, grandparents would always do the sign of the cross and then kiss their hand at the end. And I remember, so that's how I learned how to do it. And I was sitting in the front row of church as like a kid And the priest stopped what he was doing. And he goes, some of you do this kiss at the end. And he was like, that's wrong. Like, so being told by this, like, authority figure, this, like, representation for Jesus, you know, in that time that, like, your instincts are wrong or the things you do are wrong, I think, like, really, like, made me shaky with, like, everything a little bit, like, my interactions with people and, like, kind of feeling like I didn't want, you know, I wanted to a little bit hide i think to an extent so it's like if i do something wrong the spotlight's not on me i mean i don't mean to ascribe too much to it but like i would imagine that part of that is a feeling like it is a cultural practice like if that's what your family does it is like an even bigger you're wrong yeah i mean it was also i think if we're looking at the sort of cultural side of it it was a white priest and you know i grew up in like a mexican family i mean I still am a Mexican person. But yeah, I think that ended up uh, having more of an impact on me than I probably realized. But yeah, that's all just to say, like, I don't think I came out of my shell until college, because even high school, I had this one friend, Tony Balboa, and like, he, we would exchange comedy albums. And like, that was sort of like our like little language. And I feel like he got me and I had like friends here and there. But you know, it's not like, you know, people are like, oh, when you go back to San Antonio, is there anyone you see? I'm like, not really. That's a trip. It's yeah. heavy. And it's not because <laughs> they left town. No. I, I mean, it was also Catholic private school. It was like small. So I think and it was like clicky anyway. And I have like my friend Sarah that like I grew up with, but, I, you know, she like lives in Dallas and she's barely like in town. But it's just like in terms of people that were in my grade, like I don't beyond, you know, finding a fellow comedy dork. There wasn't anybody like I super connected with. How uh, Latino, how Mexican-American, how Mexican was your world when you were a kid? Um, you know what? It's a little hard to say because it's like it was pretty... Latino, but you also had, like, a girl in my class who was correcting, you know, when a teacher's like, Perez, and she's like, it's Perez. Like, people who would try to sound whiter as a means of, I mean, I get it, like, I guess of, like, fitting in or so. But, yeah, I mean, there were other kids that, like, looked like me, but I don't know. I think I just was, like, such an awkward kid that, like, you know, I don't know that I gave them anything to work with in terms of, like, wanting to be friends with me. Did you uh, have a plan when you went to college? No. I mean, it was pretty much just like uh, my plan was to have my dad not be mad. Like, it was like, okay, I'll, yeah, I, you know. Had your had your parents gone to college? They did. Yeah. They actually both went to uh, U of H in Houston. So they had gone locally 
yeah, I, I mean, we later found out I have ADD, so I had a hard time in school. Like, I could study something forever and get, like, a C. So I, like, just kind of squeaked by. I got into uh, Texas State in San Marcos, Texas, and I studied mass communications. Um, but I was just, like, not great at school. So it's like I studied that, and then the counselor there was, like— I think about to quit his job. And he was like, you know, if you switch it to theater, you can get out of here faster because a lot of the co- the classes overlap. And I was like, great, let's do theater. Wait, are you suggesting that he was giving you advice based on trying to shed cases, like reduce <laughs> his caseload so, so he could retire early? Like, I think it was a little like, whatever, man, I'm on my way out. Like, was this like a like a socks and sandals ponytail type <laughs> dude or like a... No, I think he was like a week away from socks and sandals, like a little bit of like maybe he wore the sweater the day before <laughs> sort of thing. But like that was a weird thing because even theater, like we had, um, I think it was like movement class. And it was this guy that used to be like on in the background on Broadway and they just like let him teach the class. And I think he was like really like just trying to throw it together. So I remember he basically had his line dance to the song One Headlight by the Wallflowers one day. <laughs> <laughs> like it was like so it was again like I don't um it was a weird curriculum. But either way I was like okay I got this piece of paper. Yeah. And then like that was part of the deal with my dad. He was like, okay, you know, just get a degree in anything and I will Try to help you out, you know, if you want to, like, get out of tech, like, move to L.A. Line dancing and square dancing in school is something that is far more widespread than I understood. Yes. People across America are line dancing and square dancing in P.E. class. Uh, You're looking at one of them, yeah. Which is not a sport. No. I'm just, look, we had a parachute, but. No. Yeah. No, I was in a graduating PE class and learned until I learned how to do something called slapping leather to Brooks and Dunn. <laughs> <laughs> and all that the leather is the side of your boot because you're supposed to hit it like it was. Uh. You, got, you got an A in math, but a C in boot scooting boogie. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. We've got more to get into with Vanessa Ramos. When we come back from the break, we will talk about her move to Los Angeles and about how she managed to find work here in the City of Angels, which is what we, Angelinos, call the City of Los Angeles. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin. Listen, you like podcasts, right? Sure you do. Don't try and lie to me. You're listening to one right now, so why not try a different one? called R1, The Flophouse. Uh-huh, and on The Flophouse, we watch a movie and talk about it. And then sometimes we also do other stuff. It's all meant to be funny and fun, and we think you'll have a good time. And just to be clear, the name of the podcast is not Our One, The Flophouse. It's just called The Flophouse. <laughs> I do a lot of correcting Dan. The Flophouse, a lot of correcting Dan. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Vanessa Ramos. Vanessa is a comedy writer who has worked on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Superstore, and more. She's also the creator of the brand new show, Blockbuster. It's a sitcom about the very last Blockbuster video store in the world. It is streaming now on Netflix. Let's get back into our conversation. So given your anxiety, given the fact that you came from a context where I can't imagine you knew a lot of show business professionals, what gave you the chutzpah to think after graduating from college, I should move to Los Angeles and become a professional comedy person? I didn't think I'd become a professional comedy person. Like, I honestly, I didn't really have too much of a plan. I just, um, 
you know, I had been out to L.A. with my family and I was like, oh, it's nice weather and palm trees. Uh, and then I knew at some point I wanted to try to do something in comedy. But I thought to be a writer, I'm like, you have to go to like NYU or Harvard or study writing. Like I didn't know that it was a thing I could do. Um, and honestly, I think it's like with San Antonio, I just saw people around me where it's like, want to do all these things, but then you get comfortable and you end up working at like USAA, which was the big company out there that like, you know, my mom had worked for, my aunt had worked for. And like they, you know, had a nice time doing that. But I was like, I, even if that's where I ultimately end up, I got to try to do something else. In some ways, Los Angeles is like the Paris of San Antonio. <laughs> in many ways. There's also great things that are unique to San Antonio. I'm not trying to yeah, put down Yeah, I mean, San but we Antonio, do have but... crepes here to compare, yeah, for your analogy. <laughs> that's, that's what I meant by my analogy. <laughs> it's San Antonio plus croissants. <laughs> I mean. Did you know people when you moved here? No, not really. I knew like one one guy I had met in college that like helped me get interning like at IO and that was kind of my way in as I that's how I sort of got to know people as I like interned in the box office and then waitress there and I ended up staying there for like five years because it was like honestly just how I got to know people. And IO is a improv Olympic. Is yes. IO West, um, formerly in West Hollywood. Um, if, eventually a car drove through one of them, right? Oh, yeah. I, uh, I was there later that day. That was the one. Here's the thing that people don't talk enough about the car driving through. The person, it was like 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday. The person drove through the front of the building. Luckily, no one was working yet. Um, but then they got up, ran, and the cops had to wake them up to arrest them. <laughs> It was like straight up Reno 911. It was great. <laughs> well, except for your workplace well, being sure, destroyed by a car. But also, if your workplace is going to get destroyed, shouldn't it be hilarious, Jesse? You were doing stand-up comedy, right? Um, After. Like, I was at I.O. for a while. Then I started doing stand-up. And honestly, that a little bit of, when I was working at I.O., this woman came in and she was like teaching a stand-up class. And I was like, oh, I'm thinking about taking your class. Like, it was starting to come out of my shell. And she just kind of looked at me and I was like, uh-huh. Like, it was a very dismissive sort of... So I uh, wrote on the back of a box office form and did five minutes that night in the black box theater because I was just like, okay, like it was the push I needed, I think. And then once you do it once, it's like, okay, that was terrifying, but that you've broken the seal. So it's like it wasn't I was able to like keep getting up again. And I was like, oh, and even that first time. I'm like, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Like, I got laughs. Like, my first time ever doing stand up. And it's like they weren't huge laughs, but it was laughs. And I felt like I had something to build on. What were you good at and, and what were you less good at as a stand-up? Um, I mean, writing. Like, that was always the thing people, you know, even when I felt like I was getting better on stage, they go, you're a great writer. And it was like, oh, you know, not a great performer. Um, but yeah, I think that was, and that's kind of for me how it started, is I started getting asked to write for comics when they would do Chelsea Lately or those like quick turnaround things. And then in doing that, I realized it was like, it was that in a combination of like the roast where it's like someone can deliver a joke I wrote and like deliver it wrong. And it doesn't feel like my heart got ripped out because there's a lot of comedians who try to go into writer's rooms and they just like can't, you know, they're used to it's like, oh, I'm on stage and I say my thing. And they're like, no, no, no. Well, this is in writer's rooms. They're like, But this is the funniest thing. How are we? I mean, my thing is funniest. Why are we not using it? Like their egos can't really handle the sort of process of a writer's room. One of your first professional writing gigs was one of the toughest rooms you could be in, which was writing for roasts. Yeah. What was the room like on your first roast? 
my first roast was 2012. It was a roast of Roseanne Barr before her comeback slash meltdown. And uh, it was the way those things work is they have six people on staff and then they bring in like in week two, a couple of people do a couple of days here, you know, whatever. So week one, it was like me um, and then just a, a bunch of guys that were like considerably older than me that had been doing them since the beginning. And it was like very intimidating. Um, I think it was a little bit like those cartoons where there's like a little chihuahua and like the bulldog puts its paw up and the dog is still trying to run but not going anywhere. Like uh -huh. it was like, who is this little girl? But quickly, I think it's like, okay, I just was like, I'll keep my head down and write the jokes. And then they, once they saw that it's like, you know, I was there because I loved comedy. Like they were all, you know, I got super close with like a lot of them. And then even uh, Frank Sebastiano, who was a writer there, he ended up giving me good advice that helped I think those first couple years of writing because we were in windowless like offices just writing jokes all day and it was like only Jane Lynch and Roseanne were booked at the time so you were just writing pages and pages of jokes about those two and you're just like I can't write a single another Jane Lynch joke um, and he was like he goes just pay attention to when your windows open he was like you know don't force it because you're not going to get anything good he was like get up walk around and then when you're sort of like feeling it you know you'll have like a lighter like your brain will be open and he was like then sit down and write he was like you're not gonna you know if any is sitting down and trying to force it will just block you out creatively the whole rest of the day are there rules like are there boundaries or goals when you're writing obviously one of the goals is to write funny jokes but <laughs> yeah. um beyond that like when everyone sits down and there's just a whiteboard that says roseanne Barr at the top like, are there columns? Like, is there one that says fat, one that says crazy, one that says, you know what I mean? There kind of are. It, it's in this, like, big, um, you know, sort. And it's more so you can reference when you're putting together sets for other comedians or other young people. But it's, like, this big sort of, like, stapled together big, like, pages of jokes. And it'll be like, okay, here's jokes about crazy. Here's jokes about fat. Like, it's sort of... Um, and you, based on the jokes you write, like, they get put into that category once they're, like, approved. I mean, it's like writing a joke in 1955. In some ways. <laughs> it does feel like it. The reasons for that being scary, uh, to my mind, are not just that it's a bunch of people who were there and you are new, right? But I bet these are mostly straight white dudes. Uh, you'd be correct, I would say, except for exclusively straight white dudes. And also, this is a room that is specifically. Look, I'm not. I, I, it's maybe it's overstanding to say it's specifically about being mean, uh, because it's first and foremost probably about being funny. But uh, it's definitely about both. Yes. <laughs> like it's more hostile than if you were if your first gig was on Fallon or whatever. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, um, I think, but that's a little bit. Uh, I, that part wasn't weird to me because. Um, when I was, I think I was 13, my mom, like, saw that I had an interest in comedy. And again, just trying to get me on my shell, took me to the Latino Laugh Festival, which was, like, the only comedy thing that had come through San Antonio. And it was a bunch of people doing, like, you know, Latino comedy. And it was a lot of Chicano chickens do this, like, that sort of thing. But it was a very young Greg Giraldo. And I saw him, and he just, like, did observational. And he just did – he didn't, like – make his culture his whole thing. And I hadn't seen that before. And so I became obsessed with him and watched a ton of his stuff over the years. And then when he started doing the roast, like I'd been watching them that whole time. So it was a little bit one of those things that imprinted on my brain. And um, 
yeah, I mean, I worked with over there Jesse Joyce, who used to like be Geraldo's writing partner. Uh, so yeah, I was when I got the roast. Like for me, it was sort of like it was the dream job because it's like this is where Greg lived, kind of in my brain. Do you remember a joke that you were proud of? I don't know that I'm the most proud of, but I will say this was like the first joke I ever got on TV. And this wasn't even a joke. It was just like a one thing in like the lead up because you're standing. It's my first like roast and you're on the side at like behind the stage and it's a live event. And they're, you know, they show this like package of Roseanne and shooting the national anthem and it's all of this thing. And then Jane Lynch does the intro. And I forget what like the lead up was, but it was like um, she's a domestic goddess, American icon and continues to thrill fans as Truckosaurus. Please welcome Roseanne Barr. (laughs) And so that was the first thing I wrote that ever got on TV was calling Roseanne Truckosaurus. Was it weird to write uh, horrible things about lady comedy icons with a bunch of dudes? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, uh, yeah, you don't feel like, you know, you're an angel that's going to get its wings, let me say that, but. I mean, like, leaving aside the many ill-considered and problematic things Roseanne has said and done in the context of her uh, struggles, mm-hmm. apparent emotional and mental illness struggles, and the occasional weird thing that Jane Lynch has said. Yeah. I mean, that's like two of the funniest people <laughs> in the history of the world who also like in a way that uh <laughs> who else is in a way that maybe not Flava Flav is a bad example who else has been <laughs> on the dang roast I mean Saget was roasted in a way that Bob Saget may not have had to deal with a lot of baloney to get to their places all comics have to deal with baloney not accepting Saget but Roseanne may have had to deal with more yeah um, I mean, I yes, but it's like honestly with um, at least in that joke world and a little bit out of it was my first time. I think I very actively just had to be like sort of like, OK, I'm just gonna put my head down and write jokes. And then as it started, you know, because I ended up doing uh, James Franco, Justin Bieber, Bruce Willis. And yeah, like I did a couple after that. So I think once I sort of solidified my spot and like someone is like. It was, you know, kind of a regular in these rooms. Then I felt I had like a little bit more room to sort of be like, "Mm, do we need a... So I noticed we're not calling any of the men old. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is comedy writer Vanessa Ramos. When you started writing narrative comedy, um, working on uh, initially uh, uh, an animated show called, uh, was it called Border 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 Town? Border Town, which was a Seth MacFarlane kind of gag a minute show, which I mean, I, I can understand why they would hire probably uh, the most accomplished comedy writer in LA who directly understood the world of, of South <laughs> Texas. But like w- when you got into those uh, things and eventually Superstore, which uh, ran for a long time, wonderful show. What were the things about story and character that you had to learn coming from a world where your goal was just to write the most distinctive physical characteristic of a person on a whiteboard and then write 40 punchlines about that underneath it? Yeah. I mean, well, it like Border Town ended up kind of being the perfect connective tissue because everything is just like you, every instinct in me at that time was like, you hit the joke, you get out, you hit the joke, you get out, you know? So it's like you still within, you know, that sort of like border town world, you still had a story. You still had your A story and your B story. And so sort of like learning how that maps out and learning how long an act one should be and sort of, 
the beginnings of that was a good way to like transition into a live action. And then I think if I'm being honest, I feel like I didn't fully learn or get story until beginning of season three of Superstore. And that was just watching, um, you know, watching other writers at the board like Sierra Teller Ornelas or Jackie Clark, who I brought on my show. Just uh, I'm a visual learner. So once you have the whiteboard and you see like, okay, the pink card is the A story. The blue cards are the B story. Here are your act breaks. Here, like, just something. It's almost like finally being able to click a Rubik's Cube into place. Like, oh, this is what it should look like. I know how to get it there again. I love sitcoms. I'll sit around and watch Cheers or Taxi or something anytime. Just you could want to hang out and watch Taxi. I'm in. (laughs) What did Danny DeVito say on this one that was mean? Um, (laughs) But uh, it's also a 70-year-old form. Um, on television and, and you know, to some extent extends further back on, on radio. And it's like a very particular thing because you have to make, for a network show, you're making 23 of them or whatever in a year. So you're making one almost every week with the same characters and you just have to have a way to make a 100 or 150 stories mm-hmm. out of this same set of ingredients. How do you decide when you're making a show for Netflix where the show is consumed differently, how much of that you are keeping and how much of that you are not? Um, I mean, I don't know if there was an active... I, I definitely, like, approached it differently with, like, knowing the 10. And then Netflix was also, it's like, you got to have some sort of cliffhanger at the end of every episode, especially the first three are most important. And then I think the way... And one of the execs was like, so there's this episode of Squid Game that ends with this. And I was like, that's great. But we're not like, uh, yeah, I can't. We are very much not Squid Game. Um, You're like, we've got some elements. (laughs) I mean. mean, It's like very, yeah, we are loosely Squid Game at best. They're like, raise the stakes. (laughs) Kill someone off. Um, So, yeah. So I think the way sort of I was able to in my head, it's like, okay, because we can't have a thing is like, okay, thinking of it as an emotional cliffhanger versus a physical like when it's not, you know, in the first episode, it's like, is this, you know, is the store going to be okay or they're hanging on by a thread, but then getting to like episode four where it's like. Timmy hears that Eliza's moving back in with her husband and he's you see him defeated and he's kind of like, okay, this is where he has to kind of throw in the towel. But I think the thing with like network shows I've been on, it's a little like, okay, we'll figure out these first couple of the season and then as we go, feel where we're going with net like the approach for this show. I went from, you know, not thinking beyond the pilot until we had a pickup to immediately, okay, what's the finale going to be? Because then it's like I was saying the way approaching an episode two, it's like, where do I need Timmy to be by episode five emotionally? Or where's, you know, is the store doing well? Like, where does it start doing well for it to have like an impact in the finale? So it really is just big picture sort of like mapping out. And then even if I don't know what the stories are going to be, I'll say like episode two, Carlos, you know, film school or like emotional. And then episode eight is like Hannah, like Holmes, like just... And then go into the writer's room and say, okay, guys, like we want to, you know, I don't like true blue skying because I'm like, there's just too many options. But it's like, let's figure out, you know, a story within this area for this character. How do you put together an ensemble for a workplace sitcom? How did you decide who these different people were in this world beyond your, you know, you have two leads. Mm -hmm. And then you have the other people that work there. So how do you decide what the other people who work there are? 
this one was a weird instance because, uh, I mean, I it was like the heart of the pandemic. It was 2020 when I started writing this. And um, a lot of it honestly just came from missing my family because, like, I live alone. So it was like Connie is Connie Ramos. Connie's my mom. It's just an exaggerated somewhat version of my mom played by Olga Merides. Um yeah, and then Hannah's based on my sister-in-law. Like I start I kind of started putting together like a little bit of like a fantasy team of people in my life and building around that. How do you cast somebody <laughs> to play your mom? <laughs> I mean, it ended up working like and I said this before but like Olga met my mom um, in Vancouver, and it was like that Spider-Man meme because they're both tiny Latina women. And then also, you know, when makeup and stuff would ask, and it's like, okay, the so— The one where Spider-Man is pointing <laughs> yeah, at Spider-Man just point, exactly. Spider-Man's pointing it's at Spider-Man. It's fully that. Um, but yeah, like they're both like teeny tiny, like these small women with like similar-ish features. She was not—like Olga's audition was amazing. And then makeup when we were going through stuff, like, okay, so Connie, what is her makeup? And I just described my mom's makeup. So she was like, they had like kind of the same makeup on and they just started hugging and speaking to each other in Spanish. (laughs) But yeah, I think the thing with like Connie is she, and it's a little like, I think it's a little bit of the roast stuff coming through is she says things that aren't um, great, but it's not coming from a bad place. She genuinely doesn't know. Like there's a little piece of her that's like um, Martha, who's, you know, my housekeeper, she like accidentally roasts me like every time where she's just like, um, I was just cleaning out the shower and you lose a lot of hair, huh? Like it's like and then so I'm walking around for a week, like seeing if my hair is thinning. Like it's just sort of these dr- like and I think that's the relationship Connie has with like Eliza where like even the finale and she was like, oh, Patrice. And it's like, oh, sorry, you've bad posture. I thought it was Patrice. Like she's just constantly ter- or like the whole thing about it's like. You know, she's like, if I, you know, don't come back, I, you know, haven't been kidnapped. I'm going through my Beyonce gone solo phase. And it's like, oh, you're, you know, you're not beautiful enough to be kidnapped. I mean, you're pretty sure. But to get a kidnapper's attention, you have to be like an 11. (laughs) Um, How did you end up with uh, Randall Park and Melissa Fumero? Kind of magic. I think so. Randall, it was actually written for him. Like in my pitch document, it says, you know, a Randall Park type. What does that mean, a Randall Park type? He's so likable. And he's so just like winning. You can't help but root for him. And I think you need that because otherwise with this character, it's like he can seem pathetic or delusional. But he just is like there's something about the way he, you know, the way he delivers his lines and even just like the look he gives at the end of the pilot. Like you can't help but be on his side. He's very earnest. Yes. But yeah, so I had wrote, you know, like Randall Park type. And then when the show got picked up, because it when people, you know, Randall or David Casp would tell me, he was like, I mean, there's no world where we get Randall Park. So it's like we should start thinking about, you know, auditioning people or something. And then once we got the official pickup, he was like, well, let's just like for the fun, send it to Randall. And he was the only person that read it and was in. Now, uh, Melissa Fumero, also very earnest performer. Yeah. Um, She was a a soap opera actress before she was on Brooklyn Nine-Nine for years. She's much warmer than you might imagine from from some soap opera actors, but she's just as good looking and <laughs> and like sincere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, how do you uh, how do you think about making a show that is a, a sitcom that is two stars, neither of whom is goofy? Yeah, um, I don't know. Like, I honestly, a lot of this just is like this is. Um, 
if I'm being perfectly honest, I didn't think there was a world where this show would ever go. It was my first time developing and every, you know, every writer, it's like, oh, enjoy the process. Like it's, you know, it sucks and no one gets it on their first try. I was told so many times that it's just like that. That's just not how it works. So your first time developing, it doesn't become a show. You're lucky if you get to shoot a pilot. Um, so I kind of just, I was like, okay, well, if this is going to be, you know, something that like in my mind, it's like, you know, it'll be get read on Dead Pilot Society, maybe. I kind of just wrote what I... Shout out to Dead Pilot Society, (laughs) that Maximum Fun podcast where people read their pilots that did not go. (laughs) Yes. So I think that was like a little like liberating in a way because I was like, okay, I can, you know, I'll have this either as like a sample or like... I didn't overthink it because people were just like, no, that's, you know, no one gets to make a show their first time doing development. You forgot that you were strapped to the corporate rocket ship that is Blockbuster Video. Yeah. Um, That being said, I think it's like because it was originally pitched to NBC and they, uh, you know, they passed. And then Netflix a week later was like, we'd like to meet about this. We have some graves to dance on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Shining our dancing shoes. (laughs) That part, I'm always – because, like, of course I get asked about that. And I will say to their credit, like, they did let us take our jobs, like, in the show at Netflix. But I feel like – I've read conflicting things. But I feel like it was, like, basically Netflix went to Blockbuster and is like, you know, do you want to buy our company? And the executive, like, laughed them out of the room. And then, like, three years later, they're like, oh, we finally figured out streaming. But everyone makes it sound like they just sort of bulldoze their corporate offices. <laughs> I, do you remember when Blockbuster had a streaming service? No. I think Blockbuster had a streaming service. It was not a successful. And then they had a <laughs> DVDs by mail service as well in the in those early heady days. Yeah, I didn't, didn't remember any of that. It was an exciting time for American media. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you a serious question? That's very stupid. I think there are. More actual movie posters in Blockbuster than I have ever seen in anything in film or television. Most television shows have awkward made-up movies, like all those fake movies from Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. Most movies don't acknowledge the existence of other film titles. And your show is full of actual movie posters. Yes. Well, you know what? We actually didn't have that many. We just got creative about moving them around or like the one you see in Timmy's office is suddenly in the break room. And that was, I mean, because it's some of them, I think, were universal. So we got them, you know, not but it's just expensive. You have to pay to like use them. Do you have to like did you make a list of like we would really like you five seven one, but we'll settle for Crimson Tide. <laughs> I mean, pretty much, yeah. It was like, okay, so here's a list of things we, you know, here's our ones that we prefer, and then some. They were, none of them were like. It was basically like, okay, these are like ten thousand plus, or these are. You can do, you know, feature each of these for like fifteen hundred or something, and so it just became like what fit in our budget, or that we visually, even if it's in the back of the store, you'd be able to make out what movie it was. What's the real bargain here? What, what, what do you? Where did you feel like you got over? Um, I'm trying to, because f- I think we had so many sort of old, like oldish ones around that I think we felt. Uh, like straight out of Compton was like fairly recent. And I think we have it in Timmy's office and then I'm sure it's somewhere else throughout the store in the season. But it felt like it's like, okay, like we're making it seem like the store has like current movies. <laughs> it's not just Fat Beach. It's, I mean, 
I, although now it's like if we get future seasons, I just was like, oh, I just want to have all of them be Fat Beach specifically for you. You're like $20,000 for the poster for Soul Plane? <laughs> Actually, I wonder if, if that's universal. If I can get Soul Plane, I may try to in a season two. We'll wrap up with Vanessa Ramos after a quick break. When we return, tape talk. Which VHS tapes were most important to her growing up? You won't be surprised to learn that at my house, (laughs) I fiercely guarded my copy of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But we also had a, we had a copy of The Commitments that got watched 7,000 times. But you know, Commitments, great movie. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, it's John Moe, inviting you to listen to Depression Mode with John Moe, where I talk about mental health and the lives we live with all kinds of people. Famous writers. David Sedaris, welcome to Depression Mode. Thanks so much for having me. Movie stars. Jamie Lee Curtis, welcome to Depression Mode. I am happy to be here. Musicians. I am in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm talking to Amy Mann. Great to talk to you. And song exploders. Rishikesh Hirwe, welcome to Depression Mode. Thanks so much for having me. Everyone's opening up on Depression Mode on Maximum Fun. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm talking with Vanessa Ramos. She's written for Superstore and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. She also created the new sitcom Blockbuster. It's streaming now on Netflix. Let's get back into our conversation. There's something very sad about the last blockbuster. So how do you decide who works there? Like who wants to be at the last blockbuster and not down the street at Sephora? (laughs) I mean, that was my way in as like figuring out, you know, because it was, you know, John Fox, one of our producers was like, I have the rights to blockbuster. Do you want to develop a workplace comedy? And sort of I was like, I asked myself that question with like who who works there, who's running it? And it was somebody that not only loves movies, but has to have an emotional connection to it. And that's a little bit how I landed on the, you know, the best times of his life were in this era. And when his parents would fight, he would retreat into movies. And, you know, Timmy has the superpower of being able to recommend the perfect movie exactly when someone needs it. And that's kind of the only place he can like publicly flex that superpower. So it was just using that character as the way in of like, not just loving this, you know, movies and but loving what the store did and being able to feel like he's his best self there. One of your characters learned English from watching movies. That's a very common experience. Retreating into movies is a very common yeah. immigrant experience. Like you must have known folks in uh, San Antonio who had one of those experiences as a as a little kid. Yeah. I mean, I knew a guy that um he the reality was that he learned from movies, but mostly from like Cypress Hill albums. <laughs> like it was such a specific thing that I remembered. And so, yeah, that was the foundation for Cart. Like I said, it was just gave me by pandemic time by myself to think about the different people in my life and, you know, who I would want, like who I wanted to see, I guess, in this world. And yeah, I thought about the kid that uh, was super into like, but also like knowing the lyrics to like a Cypress Hill album, I think, or like to all of the songs. Uh, I wonder how far that gets you on the day-to-day interactions. What are the VHS tapes that, if you think of them 
in your childhood you find comfort? Um, I think we had the VHS for Look Who's Talking. Look Who's Talking, possibly Look Who's Talking too. The Look Who's Talking verse was very big in my home. There was a third Look Who's Talking, wasn't I, there? Well, it was Look the Who's dog. Talking now? now. It was with the dogs. The dogs were talking now. But by then, Kirstie Alley and John Travolta were out. I think that was the last one they were still in. I think they just kind of shot around it because I think it was still the same kids, right? But the maybe the I don't know. I don't remember. Kirstie Alley and John Travolta, both, let's say, colorful characters in real life. <laughs> Uh, anything else besides my family watched uh, the commitments a lot and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Remember the time, the era where you could all of a sudden buy used VHS tapes at the blockbuster that were left over from the new releases. That yes. Those were heady days. Yeah. I feel like, Oh, um, three ninjas was another big one. And then when you said the like used bin, I think that's why, because there was like a third like sort of offshoot of three ninjas that ended up in the use. Like all of the sort of like once you get past like the first couple Beethoven, the St. Bernard movies, and then you get like Beethoven's Big Break, like that's a bin movie. Wait, what happens in Beethoven's Big Break? Um, It's with Jonathan Silverman and his son. And Beethoven is discovered by Hollywood, I believe. So they've already in this one, they've... They've got, they're we're, we're we're past the Judge Reinhold Beethoven's uh, yeah. like Grodin, we're, you know Charles Grodin like that era. Grodin's he's, out after number one, I think maybe number two. Yeah, he's around for Beethoven's second, where they have the puppies. Because I mean, here's the thing: like that's you want those puppies all inconveniencing Grodin. Yeah, but I think after that he was done. They're a real hair shirt for Charles Grodin. Most <laughs> things fit him comfortably. Most life activities seemed seemed like happy joys to Charles Grodin, but the puppies, no. No. Do you remember when you stopped having a video store as part of your lifestyle? I don't remember the exact year, but I remember, yeah, I remember just kind of being, because it was such a ritual, like my dad coming home from work and the four of us going and getting movies for the weekend. Like it was like a thing of like, dad's going to come home early, this family activity and then it felt like the beginning of, like, everybody kind of doing their own thing. It's like, okay, well, you know, I'll go watch something in my room. My brother is going to play, like, video game. My parents are going to be on the couch, like, watching something. Did you have family movie night? We, I mean, during Blockbuster times, like, we did. What did it involve? Um, It was, oh, my mom, like making popcorn with way too much butter and her being like, see, it's like being in, every time she would say, it's like being in the theater and it's like, we have popcorn and it's a couch. Um, But yeah, it was that. And then, you know, my brother and I would sometimes get, we would just play basically pretend movies or like with the, you know, we'd have candy, she'd have popcorn. My dad would uh, try to pry himself away from work. And then I don't think my brother and I ever made it through a full movie. We'd end up falling asleep. Every time? Every time. Even if it was something really exciting like Rockadoodle? Um, well, Rockadoodle was not something the rest of the family would watch. Like Rockadoodle, not only would we watch Rockadoodle, but there was like this one, it was my brother and I, we'd like put it on in the morning, kind of like before my dad like was up and around the house. And then we'd keep rewinding this one part where they like, they make the evil sort of rooster or not rooster, like evil bird. They shrink him down and he thus has no powers. And he has suddenly has a high voice and he says, Hodge, it's me, Uncle Dookie. And we thought that was the funniest thing we'd ever seen. So we would just like rewind the hell out of that for most of the morning. <laughs> well, Vanessa, I sure appreciate you taking all this time to be on Bullseye. And it's a really funny show. Thanks for making it. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for watching.
Vanessa Ramos. Her new show is called Blockbuster. Its entire first season is streaming now on Netflix. It's very fun and funny. Randall Park. What a treasure. Also other people on this show. I just especially love Randall Park. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, the three trees that I planted out front are starting to lose their leaves. They're either dying or just deciduous. Only time will tell. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is Huddle Formation, written by and recorded by The Go Team. Thanks to them and to Memphis Industries, their label. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us in all of those places. Follow us. We will share with you all of our interviews. And that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.